study through the book of Isaiah together. Chapter 40 is where we pick up this evening. And you'll certainly notice there's a real change that transpires from Isaiah chapter 40 onward now to the closure of the book. The first 39 chapters really had a very strong tone in a lot of ways of judgment, particularly chapters 1 through chapters 35. We saw in our last few studies together, chapters 36 through 39 give us the historical narrative of some of the events that happened during the days of King Hezekiah that were some of the backdrop of the first 35 chapters, and they were inserted there as kind of a little bit of a historical narrative and also to break up I think really the transition from the first 35 chapters to where the tone of the book starts to change now in chapter 40 through the remainder of Isaiah's prophecy. Uh, Chapters 1 through 35, as I said, were a lot of references to judgment against the nations and even against God's own people because of their rebellion against the Lord, living in idolatry, rejecting God's word many of the flagrant things that they were doing in disregard to what it meant to live for God. And now the tone shifts, we'll see, beautifully, and it's much more easier in some ways to uh, digest, I think, some of what's here in chapter 40 and on. Uh, The tone now shifts to one of comfort, to one of hope, to a tone of encouragement, and really of good things coming ahead. And I don't know who likes to, or who doesn't like to think about good things coming ahead. Uh, And I think everybody to some degree enjoys having an anchor of hope. And really that's what these chapters are. They're filled with hope and comfort regarding God's greatness and the plans that he has. The backdrop as we come to chapter 40 and begin into it, remember, however, the historical narrative we saw, particularly as we closed out chapter 39, We had just heard of the reality from the prophet that even though Judah, the southern kingdom, was spared from being conquered by Assyria as the northern kingdom was, the northern kingdom has already been conquered by the reigning world empire at this time, Assyria historically, and the Assyrian empire was encroaching upon Judah. They had really kind of put Judah through quite a beating. I mean, they did have quite a bit of loss and difficulty, but they did not ultimately conquer Jerusalem, the capital city, which if God would have allowed that, that would have been the end to the southern kingdom of Judah, and God spared them from that. But though God spared them from complete conquest by Assyria, Nonetheless, there was the reference that we saw particularly that the southern kingdom of Judah, due to their sin and their neglect of God's word and their idolatry, their rejection of the Sabbath year, that they would still be conquered ultimately by Babylon, and they would be taken into exile and live for 70 years in captivity in Babylon. In fact, if you just glance back there in chapter 39, uh, verse Uh, 5, it says, Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that are in your house and what your fathers have accumulated until this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. So there'd be a complete conquest of the southern kingdom of Judah as they were conquered by Babylon, the next coming world empire. And they shall take away, he said, verse 7, some of your sons who will descend from you, 
whom you will beget, and they shall become eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. As we reference, we know some of that is very clearly described right in the book of Daniel. In Daniel chapter 1, we know Daniel himself, his friends Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Uh, clearly, what's described in verse 7 is a description of exactly what would happen to them. So you have this kind of difficult news that the prophets just brought to them that you're going to be conquered, your sin is going to catch up to you because of their idolatry, their rejection of God's word. They would be conquered. They would be taken into exile in Babylon. And those were going to be difficult times and difficult years. Yet it's right on the heels of that now that the tone shifts. And in chapter 40 and onward, we begin to get these promises, however, despite their failure, despite the fact that they were going to suffer the consequence of their sin and their wrongdoing to some degree circumstantially, that God was promising forgiveness, he was promising restoration, he's speaking to them about the future deliverance that he was going to bring them back and he's going to restore them after the captivity in Babylon and the Lord himself had a hope and a glorious future ahead and he wanted them to be encouraged by that. He wanted them to be comforted that though they were going through and would go through difficult times circumstantially, that God had good plans down the road for them and that they should be comforted, that they should take hope in that and that God was powerful and loving and that he was going to do good things in the days ahead for them. So no doubt as that's kind of the backdrop, chapter 40, verse 1, the first words that we hear coming through the prophet by the Holy Spirit is the Lord saying, verse 1, comfort, yes, comfort my people, says your God. So notice God here exhorts his servant to provide a ministry of comfort to those who are hurting, to those who are in distress, to those who are downcast and disheartened because of the difficult things they're dealing with and even the difficult days that were still going to be ahead. And this was causing them and would cause them to suffer and so therefore, God speaks to his servant and he says, listen, I want you to do those things that will comfort my people. I want you to say those things that will comfort my people. And the idea of comfort there is to seek to ease their suffering or to alleviate their distress. I want you to say things. I want you to do things in a ministry of love and a ministry of compassion, representing the heart of God. The Bible tells us in the New Testament that he is the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our troubles that we would be able to comfort others. And so here God speaks to his servant and he says, listen, the people are hurting. They're going through hard times. They're hurting. Some of them are hurting because of their sins and their guilt and their mistake. And right, one of the outcomes of sin and rejecting God's word and living outside of God's will or backsliding or sin not only is wrong, it damages lives, right? It causes pain to us and our sin not only harms us, it's not only self-destructive and all of us have known that in different ways in our lives, just like God's people realize that it brought their own hardship upon their lives. But our sins also at times hurt other people and cause pain to others that are influenced by our sin or affected by our sin. And we, to some degree, know that. Maybe on the end of being the one that because of our sin, we hurt others around us. And some of us also know the experience of at times being wounded, right? And being hurt 
and suffering because of the things that happened to us as the result of the sins of other people and the pain and the hardship it brings into our lives. And so as the result of sin, God says to his servant, listen, people are hurting. Comfort them. Do what you can to comfort people. Do what you can speaking in ways and and doing things for people to provide comfort for them, to minister to them. Sometimes people are hurting and it has nothing to do with sin. It's just hardships and tragedies of life, loss and difficulties and tragedies that unfold, emotional pain. Sometimes people are hurting and they need comfort and alleviation of pain and suffering physically. So there are lots of different ways at times that people around us can benefit if we were as well to take the exhortation that God gave to his servant, the prophet here, to take this to ourselves, that God would say to us, comfort, comfort my people. And look, I think this is very valuable because sometimes I think as believers that, that we can begin to have a tendency where when we're trying to be led by the Spirit, our primary default is we want to correct people or convict people and play the Holy Spirit in people's lives. And it's interesting that God says, whether it's because of their sin and failure, or whether it's because someone has sinned and caused hurt in their life, or because they're just hurting in some way emotionally because of something that they've gone through, or whether they're suffering in some way physically, God says, you will never lack for an audience if you seek to speak comfort to hurting people. Because lots of people are hurting. A lot of times we even have no sense of awareness of how many people around us are hurting in different ways. In the church, in our families, in our workplaces, this world, because of the fall of sin, and sickness and suffering and selfish human behavior constantly keeps people in a degree of pain. It's one of the reasons we so look forward to heaven, right? Because there's no more sickness or sorrow or death or suffering, and it even says, or pain, the absence of pain. But as long as we're on this earth, for whatever the reason may be, there is always value and opportunity to speak comfort, and to do things to comfort God's people. Paul particularly speaks of how even as we go through things in our lives, I referenced it a moment ago, uh, at times God will take us through things and let us be comforted to make us better comforters. The Bible tells us this, 2 Corinthians 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, and listen to what he says, who comforts us in all our tribulation that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. So we need to recognize sometimes the hardships that we go through, the pain that we experience, our suffering, our distress, whether it's, again, suffering from our own sin and mistakes and our failures and the pain that comes from sinful mistakes that we make sometimes, or other people did something sinful and it caused pain and hurt in our life in some way and we suffer because of that, or whether it's because of some just hardship we go through as a part of living on a fallen earth and the painful, difficult things that are part of living an earth's journey, or whether it's physically 
that your tent is wearing out or there's affliction or disease or suffering in the physical body, God tells us that one of the reasons he will permit and allow two degrees in different times and seasons in our lives, hardship and pain and suffering, is that we might come to know an aspect of God's nature, which is that he is loving and he likes to comfort and to minister and alleviate pain, and he can comfort us in our suffering and our distress and hardship. And that is also not only just for our individual benefit, but it's also so that we can be qualified channels on this earth, he says, to then comfort other people better. Because until you have needed to be comforted, until you've received God's comfort, a lot of times we're really not the best qualified at trying to comfort other people. We say things we shouldn't say, we do things we shouldn't do, but when you go through a few things and you've experienced pain and distress and hardship and then you encounter God's comfort as he ministers his comfort to you, it's amazing how through that process God always gets maximum mileage out of everything that he allows to happen. He's a really good steward that what God also does is he says, I've comforted you, that mattered to me most, but now what I've also done is I have prepared you because there are gonna be two, three, five, 10, 12, 20 other people as you continue on your journey that are gonna need that same kind of comfort. And now I've equipped you to be my comforter. And now you can be my representative to help them because there are hurting people all around you. And so God here says to his servant, his first concern even though the people were going to go through hard times, he says, comfort, yes, comfort my people, says your God. And then he tells him one of the things particularly to comfort them regarding. He says, speak comfort to Jerusalem, to the people there in the southern kingdom of Judah who had failed, who were going through the hardship because of their own sin against God. Speak comfort to Jerusalem and cry out to her, and interesting that term there, verse 2, when he says, speak comfort to Jerusalem, it literally is a term that conveys the idea of communicating to the heart in the Hebrew. And so the idea there is that God's saying, look, just don't just say theoretical, you know, terms or, or a comment. Speak to people's hearts. If you're genuinely going to comfort someone, you don't want to speak some intellectual knowledge to their head. I think one of the most insensitive things Christians do sometimes is they just throw a Bible verse at somebody on occasion thinking that that's just the best way to comfort somebody. And, and, and the reality is what we should be doing, and we'll see this when we get further in Isaiah, where it tells us that the Lord gave me a word in season to speak to someone who is weary. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't give God's word to someone. I'm not trying to take that to an extreme. But what we need to realize is sometimes the best thing to say would be perhaps something that is a timely word in season that the Spirit of God gives to us that is very appropriate to comfort. And it may not be just some cliche statement that just seems like maybe the right thing to say in the moment. Sometimes, honestly, saying less is actually saying more. And here he says, speak to the heart. Literally, the Hebrew is, as he says that term, speak comfort. It's a different term than in the verse one above it. Speak to the heart, speak comforting to Jerusalem and cry out to her. And this is what he says to comfort them regarding. That her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, for she has received from the Lord's hand double for all 
her sins. So God gives Isaiah the prophet here some reasons that the people could take comfort regarding. And he says, Isaiah, tell them these are things that they can take comfort in. First of all, he says that the warfare, the burdensome battle that they had been undergoing, the hard difficulty where it felt like that they were in constant battle in a long war, and sometimes that's what it's like, right? We, we feel like that we're just in battle after battle after battle, and sometimes a trial can feel like just like you're in a combat zone in the middle of a war, and it is just one battle after another, just continuous warfare. And he says, I want you to comfort my people and let them know, he says, that the time of warfare has ended, that things are going to settle down, that all the battles and the difficult things you've been enduring through and battling through, that's now going to be done, and you take comfort in that. You take comfort that the battling, that season of hardship and warfare, it's now come to an end, and let that be a comfort to you. And also, secondly, there's the assurance that despite their guilt from their errors, and they were guilty, clearly, what they had done in their rebellion against God, he says, let them also be comforted by knowing, speak to them, comfort that their iniquity is pardoned. And that was another way that God wanted them to take comfort, to know that there was assurance that despite their guilt from their error, that God had pardoned their sin and that they were forgiven. And that's an incredibly comforting thing when you're living with guilt in your life. When you're living with guilt and you're realizing part of the reason I'm in a war now, part of the reason I'm going through conflicts and pain and challenges is because I brought this on myself because I made mistakes and you're dealing with the guilt of that. It's so wonderful to be able to hear the Lord say, listen, tell them it's pardoned. Comfort them, tell them it's forgiven. I'm not angry at them. Yes, there may be some circumstantial things that are still unfolding. That's inevitable. That's called sowing and reaping. But God says, I want you to comfort them and assure them that it's pardoned. It's forgiven. I'm not at angst against them. I'm not mad at them. I'm not getting them. And let them know that, that it's forgiven, that I've cleansed them of that, and that it's been washed clean and it's forgiven. And then really the third thing becomes the basis of the first two things, that the Lord had allowed them to endure sufficient punishment for their sins, and he wanted them to know that it was measured and it was not going to be a prolonged thing. The, the captivity was only a certain period of time. Now, the language is a little bit difficult there in verse 2 where he says, for she has received double, uh, for, excuse me, from the Lord's hand, double for all her sins. Now, the idea there is not, and I know in the English this is where it gets a little bit difficult, particularly the way that translates. The, the English is not the idea, as it may read in your mind, is that because the Lord is so angry at your sin. Now, keep in mind, though, what did he just say? The warfare's ended, and you're pardoned. Now, context would make the mind think, if God's saying, the warfare's ended, I'm not at war with you, you're forgiven, it would seem kind of strange to God saying, but nonetheless, I'm going to give you a double spanking. I'm going to punish you double for your sins. That would almost seem like a conflict, right? That, that's kind of contradictory to what God's saying there. He's not saying in anger God was going to punish them twice as much or twice as severe as their sins deserve. The Bible tells us in Psalm 103 that he doesn't treat us as our sins deserve. God's always merciful to us. 
Rarely does he even punish us as much as our sins deserve, so let alone punishing us twice as much. That term double there in the Hebrew is, is literally a term that could be translated folded or we might say doubled over. And so the idea there is talking about when something is doubled over or folded, it creates two equal parts. And so the, the context, the idea there of the language seems to be implying the, the idea of equal sections that God is saying, tell my people they can be comforted. The warfare has ended. There's no more animosity. I have pardoned and forgiven their guilt. I am not upset with them. And the reason is they have received an equal, sufficient portion of suffering for their sin already. The captivity perfectly meets, if you would, the punishment meets the crime, God's saying. I'm not going to punish them more than what's necessary. Let them understand I'm not looking to get them or to make them suffer more than necessary. He's saying they have experienced fair and equal punishment for their sin. It's now resolved. I'm not angry. They're forgiven don't let them continue to live in guilt and self-pity and condemnation continuously. That's not the heart of God. Now, when we look at that, that really, again, as I said, is the basis for the first two things. What a fitting reminder that is of exactly the same reason why spiritually we as well, even as New Testament believers, can take comfort for the very same thing. Because of the fact that Jesus, as our propitiatory sacrifice, took the necessary punishment and a satisfactory payment for all of our sins was placed upon Jesus. Because of that, we can be comforted knowing that though we are guilty sinners, that because Christ was sufficiently punished for our sins, that we can be comforted that we have, Romans 5 says, peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And that we're justified, though guilty, we have been made justified just as if we've never sinned. And more than that, we have the righteousness of Christ imparted to our account and we're completely pardoned and forgiven. And the only basis for that is because not us, but Christ from a New Testament perspective received the full punishment from the hand of the Lord, the Father, the wrath of God was put upon him and we can be greatly comforted. And you know, that's very, very good news. And if there's anything that comforts the human soul, it's simply knowing that though you failed, though you have some degree of guilt in your life, just like I have in my life for the things that you have guilt over, to be able to know you're at peace with God. And you don't have to worry all the time, is this happening in my life because God's mad at me? God's getting me. God's punishing me. All these years later, that, that's why this happened. This is from that thing I did in third grade and, and God's been waiting to still get me for that. And God says, no, no, no. The punishment was sufficient. The warfare's over. You're pardoned. Take that comfort in your soul. Sleep with a good conscience at night and enjoy the forgiveness and the wonderful grace of God through the finished work of Jesus Christ. He then goes on, verse 3. Interestingly enough, we know this much in many ways connects to the New Testament. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted and every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight and the rough places smooth. So the imagery here in verse three and four 
was very common. It was a reference to what the people would do in that culture when a special or important ruler, or we might say dignitary, or maybe a king, would be coming into their territory in a day, understand, where there were not paved roads like there are today. Many of the roads were, were dirt roads, compacted down, stones, if you had something a little bit better. But because there weren't nice paved roads, there were you know, all types of unlevel territories. There were hills to go over. There were bumps in the road that you know, people didn't bother removing. There were gullies and ditches and valleys. The roads weren't always nice and straight. There were turns many times around obstacles, whatever was the easiest way to create a pathway in a road. That's what they would do. But when you got word from someone, when, when some ambassador or some voice of someone brought word to you crying out, hey, there's a king coming to visit you. When you heard that, your desire would be, we need to prepare the way because we want to do everything possible to give the most ease of access that we can to that important person to get to us. So that's when they would do really what's being described there in regards to verse 4. Every valley, every low point would be filled in and lifted up and exalted to make it level. Every mountain and hill, would they try and bring it low. They try and level off any bumps or obstacles. And any crooked place, they would try and straighten them out. And the whole purpose behind that was it was an expected thing to do whatever you could to make ease of access for that important person, for that king, for that ruler to be able to provide visitation to you. It was a great honor. So you wanted to prepare the way so they could get to you as easily as possible and that you could have an experience with them. Now, of course, this was being applied here spiritually. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way not for a earthly king or a human important dignitary, but here, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight, he says here, in the desert, a highway for God. That is, prepare the way so that you can experience a visitation from God, an encounter with God. You know, when we think of valleys, valleys are gaps where things were missing, where things needed to be filled. And honestly, spiritually, we have a lot of gaps in our lives, do we not? In our lives, there are gaps, there are insufficiencies, there are gaps between what we should be and what we're not. And we know there are different gaps in all of our lives. There are gaps in our prayer lives. There are gaps maybe in our Bible reading. There are gaps in our you know, devotion and, and obedience to the Lord. And there are gaps between where we should be spiritually and where we know we're really at spiritually. And there, there are gaps that need to be filled in our lives. In the same way, he just talks about leveling mountains. Mountains are large barriers, and hills are things that need to be overcome in order to pass through. And we as well, spiritually, all have barriers in our lives. There are things in our lives, spiritually, that become like obstacles that hinder us. Maybe there are struggles with sin. Maybe there are attitudes that are wrong. Maybe it's apathy spiritually or whatever it may be, but there are many a times we find are spiritually things in our life that are barriers and obstacles that hinder us from having the experience with the Lord that we ultimately could and should have with the Lord. In the same way, he describes taking the curves and trying to straighten things out. 
curves slow things down. And I think we should ask ourselves from time to time as we seek to prepare the way of the Lord spiritually for ourselves, is there anything in my life spiritually that needs to be straightened out? Because I don't want anything to hinder me from having the fullest encounter and experience with the Lord that I possibly could. And God's no respecter of persons. God wants to visit us. God wants to encounter us. The Lord wants to come to us. And we should be spiritually just like they would literally, practically. The prophet here says, listen, you know how to do this for earthly kings. I'm telling you, prepare the way of the Lord. Make a highway for God to come and to visit you. Do you want to encounter God? Do you want to experience his presence? Interesting that the Holy Spirit tells the prophet to say to God's people, there's a part where it's a responsibility on our end to do what we can to prepare ourselves to have an experience with God. There is a part that is on our end. Does God want to visit us? Does God want us to encounter him? Yeah, but it is a relational thing, and there at times are certain things that we can and should do to prepare ourselves so that we can have that full encounter with God. And sometimes the voice of the Lord to us is, hey, what do you need to do to prepare the way of the Lord to be able to come and to visit you, to have that encounter with him? Notice when we do such things, verse 5, it's almost as if there's a promise, an encouragement, or an assurance. He says, and the glory of the Lord shall be, notice, shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has Spoken. So God's assuring the people here, if they make proper preparation spiritually, that his powerful presence would be revealed to them. That the glory of the Lord, he doesn't say might be revealed, he says shall be revealed. God says, if you prepare the way, I'll come. If you make yourself ready, I'll visit you. I'll reveal my glory to you and I will come and you will experience my glory and my power and my presence in the fullest extent. Now, of course, when we read these verses, we know that they prophetically speak very beautifully of what the heart of God was where literally the glory of God would come in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ as he came to the earth as the extension of God the Son of God, Jesus, came and visited the earth and brought the kingdom of God in all of its glory embodied in his flesh. And, of course, we know verses 3 and 4 here, all the gospel writers in the New Testament attach these verses to the ministry of, do you remember who? John the Baptist, right? That John the Baptist, verse 3 Whenever they saw him ministering, the gospel writers refer to him as the one who was the voice crying out in the wilderness to the people of God, to the Jews, saying to them, prepare the way of the Lord. You need to get ready. You need to get right. You need to repent of your sins, deal with things in your life, and get ready because the Messiah is coming. Get yourself ready. Prepare yourself Make things straightened out in your life spiritually to whatever degree you're responsible for and make a highway for our God because the King of Kings, the King of Heaven is coming. John himself, in, in, in the Gospel of John, uh, even himself attaches this very verse, verse 3, speaking of himself when they asked him, who are you? Are you Messiah? And he said, look, I'm not the Messiah. I'm just the voice crying out in the wilderness. And how interesting, you have to wonder if John... 
as he was seeking God and he's out in the wilderness and the call of God is upon his life and he's trying to determine you know, what God's leading him to do by the Spirit. And in the midst of that, perhaps John reading the scroll of Isaiah and reading verse 3, the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. And John realized, that's it. That's what God's called me to do. That's my ministry. And from the word of God, he realized that's all I'm supposed to be. I'm just supposed to. And I love the fact that a voice. And that's all John sought to do. One of the things that's so beautiful about John's powerful ministry in preaching, John, the Bible says, never did a sign, never did a miracle, but Jesus calls him the greatest prophet that ever existed because he did one thing and he did it really well. He just pointed people to Jesus. He would, all he saw it to be was a voice. Do you see a voice? Right? We hear a voice. A voice communicates truth. A voice can guide us. A voice can direct us. But you don't see a voice. And that's what John tried to be. Remember, John said, I must decrease. He, Jesus, must increase. You know, whenever the Lord calls us to serve him or to speak for him, it's a really wonderful thing to do everything we can to be as invisible as possible in the process and let people hear nothing more than the voice of the Lord. And it's not about our image, our presentation, who we are. It's the reality that we want people to hear the voice of the Lord speaking to them. And I love that this is the way that John's ministry is described. He was just a voice speaking about the Lord, telling people to be prepared. Verse six goes on to say, and the voice then said, cry out, and he answered and said, what shall I cry? In other words, you want me to declare something? What do you want me to declare? And this is what God wanted declared. All flesh is grass, and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers and the flower fades because the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but here's the contrast to the withering grass, the temporary grass, the word of our God stands forever. So as he describes there verses six through eight, he's really referencing two things. First of all, the frailty of humans. That's very evident what the writer is trying to convey here. He's comparing humanity, the flesh of man, our physical lives as just like the grass. What is grass? Grass is temporary it's weak. If you're me, it's an annoying nuisance because I despise when it grows. I love brown grass. I see people watering their lawns outside, and I pray it doesn't accidentally come over the fence and touch any of my lawn. I just, I love brown grass because I don't like yard work, right? So, but, but grass is, it's temporary, right? It's transient. Even as much as I try and wait as long as possible, Max, I can make it before the neighbors call the township on me. It's maybe two weeks, and I got to cut that grass down again. So that's all it gets for its lifespan. It's very transient. It's very short. It's temporary. Grass is frail. It doesn't take much to kill grass, to destroy grass. And what he is doing, he's comparing the flesh of man, the strength, the life of human beings to the most frail thing he can possibly think of. He says the flesh of man he says, even in all of its loveliness, in other words, the greatest grandeur of a human being, 
And people think they're so great, they're so special, you know, they're so important, they're so... In, and, and God says, human beings, human life, he says, it is the frailty of human beings is so temporary, even in its most beautiful state, in its most influential capacity, it is temporary and frail. And then he contrasts and he says, but you know what really is something important and permanent and enduring and lasting? not the words of a man, it's not the influence of a man, it's not the impressiveness of a human being in their flesh. He says that all withers, and again, it's so true, so oftentimes, you know, people come and they're popular and they're important, and just as quick as somebody's big and popular and important, everybody just forgets about them. And it's just kind of a sad reality of human life, is somebody can be super important and influential, and then all of a sudden they can be forgotten very quickly, even in human history, the most important figures that have been on this earth. But he says, the one thing that is permanent, enduring, and lasting, he says, but the word of our God, that stands forever. It's the complete contrast, the exact opposite, the powerful, enduring quality of God's word that remains stable and remains useful long-term. Now, look, folks, in light of that, that should be a good reminder to us what should matter most. Not the word of people, not what's the popular opinion, not what's the idea. What we should care about is what's the word of our God on a matter, because that's what's going to stand. The word of politicians, it ain't going to stand. The word of people, it's going to change, because one month it's this, and then six months later, then they're changing and they're saying, but God's word is enduring. It's settled forever in the heavens, Psalm 119 says. It's going to stand forever. It's permanent and it's enduring, and that's why it's what we should build our lives upon, what we should rely on. He says the word of our God will stand. Nobody can alter it. Nobody can change it. They've tried to eradicate the word of God from the planet throughout human history, and it perseveres, and it endures, and it stands. And so important that we recognize that that should therefore have a great deal of superiority in our life because of that wonderful thing. How great to know that one thing we have, it's always reliable, this book, God's word. It will stand the test of time, its truths will always remain, and its promises will always prove out to be reliable. You can stand upon the word of God because God's promises will always be fulfilled. And here's why, because unlike a human being, God has the power to fulfill his promises. Human beings can't always do that, but God has the power to do anything. Verse 9, he says, O Zion, you who bring good tidings, go up into the high mountain, O Jerusalem. You who bring good tidings, lift up your voice with strength. Lift up, he says, and be not afraid. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. The idea is see your God or look because your God is coming. So there's this exhortation in verse 9 to announce this good news. That's the idea there. We see it twice of good tidings. Announce this good news that God can be seen, that God will be known, that you can behold him in his greatness. You can encounter him in a personal way. And here, the word of the Lord was that this was to be shared, notice, confidently. He says, go into the mountains Lift up your voice with strength. In other words, don't hold back. Don't have hesitation. This is an important announcement about the goodness of God, the coming of God. So he says, just like evangelizing as we would from a New Testament perspective, go forth with confidence, bring these good tidings, bring this good news 
Speak it with strength and confidence, and don't be afraid. In other words, don't hesitate. Don't hold back. You don't have to worry about sharing these things if it's something that's not going to be valuable. It's the most important message that Judah needed to hear in that day, and the gospel of Christ is the most important message of good tidings people need in this day. Verse 10, he goes on to say, And behold, the Lord God shall come with a strong hand, and his arm shall rule for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his work is before him. So this describes the Lord coming to his people and doing such with great power. And that's the imagery here. He describes the Lord coming with a strong hand and a mighty arm that will rule. The idea is his mighty arm and his strong hand will take over. That when God's hand gets involved in things, it's a complete takeover. The Lord can rule and the Lord will overrule. And he says, the Lord is coming and when he comes, he will rule. He will take over control by his mighty hand and his strong right arm. And he will resolve problems and even better than that. And he says, and he will ultimately bring his reward with him. In other words, he will reward those who have been faithfully trying to honor him as they've been struggling under the weight of the difficulty of those who have been rebelling against him. And he says, listen, I'm coming. Tell the people that my strong hand is going to be involved soon and my arm is going to overrule in things and that my reward is with me and a part of my work when I come and rule is I will reward my faithful servants with my great power and appreciation of their faithfulness. And verse 11 then compares him to the tender shepherd, and he will feed his flock like a shepherd and gather the lambs with his arm and carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young. So verse 10 speaks of the almighty power of the Lord. Verse 11 kind of pictures him as a tender, compassionate, very gracious and kind shepherd who is tenderly caring for his flock, caring for his sheep, ensuring that their welfare will be addressed because he is a good and a loving shepherd. It says he will, notice, feed his flock so that is, he'll provide nourishment to them. He'll supply what's necessary to keep them healthy and strong by feeding them and nourishing them. And also, like a good shepherd, he would be gently helping those even who were weaker among them. Because he says there in verse 11, regarding tending the flock, he will gather the lambs with his arm very tenderly. And the difference between a lamb and a sheep is typically, they say, that at the 12-month and under age span, that's considered a lamb, a younger lamb where after 12 months, they're considered sheep. So the picture here of a lamb is those who were younger among the flock, those who were weaker and more vulnerable because they're younger, they're still tender lambs. And, and he says here that with the tender lambs, he will tend them and gather them with his arm. The idea is, is compassionately coming alongside, like we might say, putting your arm around someone, maybe who needs a little extra help, because they're not quite as experienced, they're not quite as prepared, they're weaker. And look, you may feel like, man, I, I feel like I'm so much weaker than other people spiritually, and like I just, I'm so needy. Well, listen, that's fine. There's a good shepherd who not only feeds the flock, but he also, in his tenderness, will come alongside, and it says he will gather his lambs with his arm. And he pulls the weaker lambs to himself, 
And even more than that, it says he's willing to carry them for a season in his bosom. That is, he carries the weak close to his heart, keeping them close, protecting them. And then verse 11 also speaks of the leading of the Lord as a good shepherd. It says he gently leads, notice gently leads those who are with young. What's that describing? That's describing those who are expectant. Those sheep that are pregnant at the time with lambs. And it says that God has a special sensitivity and a tenderness to those who go through that process. That, that at times he knows that even the way that he leads isn't always maybe as direct and if you would assertive that sometimes when someone is in a certain season, as would be the season when you have a, a pregnant sheep with lambs, that they need to be led a little bit at a slower pace. They need a little bit more of a gentle guiding and directing. And how wonderful. Jesus is such a good shepherd. And of course, we know that he calls himself the good shepherd. He's the chief shepherd in the New Testament. That he doesn't just drive the herd. That sometimes Jesus in the midst of his leadership, like a good shepherd, will recognize in this season, this particular sheep, they need to be led a little bit more gently right now. And he will gently lead and gently guide because he's sensitive to the different stages and situations we're in in life. And what a beautiful picture of the shepherding care of the Lord, how tender. He's so powerful in the prior verse, but yet so tender and compassionate and gracious and of course, Jesus, as our good shepherd, we know from a New Testament perspective, does a wonderful job in caring for us as his sheep. Verse 12, he then goes on to speak of the great power of the Lord again, why he's able to do these things, because he's limitless. Look what he says. He says, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, measured heaven with a span, and calculated the dust of the earth in a measure, weighed the mountains in scales, and the hills in a balance. So again, I don't know all the statistics as people who know all types of interesting things about the earth. And if you're looking for an encyclopedia, you're going to be highly disappointed from the pulpit here, obviously, but you haven't noticed yet. Um, but just contemplate the reality. They say what? That there's about 70% of the earth, they say approximately, is water. I heard a statistic before, and I, and I don't quote me on the accuracy of it, that they said that if you wanted to get a frame of reference for how much water is on the globe, that if you took the United States of America, and I remember correct, they said, and if you built walls around the border of the United States of America, this is not going to get political. Just stay with me here. If you built walls to make it like a pool, to fill it with water, that the walls of the pool, if you used walls around the United States of America to contain all the water on the earth would have to be somewhere around 90 miles high. Get a picture of that. 90 mile high walls, the whole border of the United States of America, like a big pool full of water, and God says, I got all that right here. That's a pretty big God, isn't it? Now, of course, these are what we call anthropomorphisms where the Bible uses human descriptions to try and picture things that we can relate to. You may be thinking to yourself, man, if God's hand's that big, how, well, how big is God? You know, he's got all, but think about that. God, when God put water on the earth, God said, hmm, how about the Pacific Ocean there? How about the Atlantic Ocean there? Let's make some great lakes. And all of it in the hollow of his hand. 
and we wonder, Lord, this is so big, it's so overwhelming. Lord, this this is just, I, God says, do you know how much I can hold in my hand? Do you know how much I'm in control of? How easily I can provide, how easily I can do things? Again, he's describing the greatness of God. He says that, that he measures the waters in the hollow of his hand. He measures the heaven. The idea is, again, the Bible speaks of three heavens, the atmospheric heavens, the stellar heavens, the stars, the galaxies, all those kind of things, and then the eternal heavens. And it says he measures heaven, encompassing those things, with a span of his hand. The span is from your thumb to your pinky. So all those things that we say, every time we look and we learn more and we get better telescopes, it's it's bigger, it's bigger, it's bigger, it's bigger, right? NASA and all these people. and, and, And with the span of God's hand, he can span the whole thing. He can measure it all with just one hand. That's how great, that's how big your God is. It says all the dust of the earth. He can calculate, he can put it on his scales and weigh it out as if it's absolutely nothing. Again, the picture here is to remind us, sometimes we think our problems are huge. And look, I'm not diminishing. To us, they are. That problem is huge. It is monstrous. It is overwhelming. And it is something by your strength, your capacity, and your power, you could never fix and never resolve and never handle. But look how big your God is. And when you see how big your God is, that's to give you great comfort and to give you great encouragement, right? To go, oh my goodness. Thank goodness I have a God that is that big, that awesome, that powerful. And at the same time, he's a God, as we saw in the prior verse, that's super tender. He comes along and he gently puts his arm around one little lamb and he says, I know you're overwhelmed and you're hurting right now and I know this is huge for you but I'm going to gently walk you through this. And this almighty, powerful God condescends and does that, right? One of the things that's always amazed me about when the Bible says that he wipes away every tear from our eyes, right? Think about that in connection here to this verse here, that it tells us he's got all the waters of the earth, he can measure it in the hollow of his hand, and that massive, powerful, strong hand condescends in humility and gentleness and wipes away a tear from the cheek of a human being who's hurting, who's suffering to comfort them. I mean, that's a pretty amazing thing. If that don't leave us in wonder and make us worship, I don't know what it takes. And I'm only 12 verses into the chapter so far. You could tell I was just on vacation because I guess I had a spiritual indigestion. I had a lot in there. I had to, had to get out. Let's stand together and let's pray.